and welcome to Time at the Bar with myself, Florian Hodgkinson. And myself, Marianne Hodgkinson. So how are we today then, Maz? Feeling good. Feeling ready. Feeling ready. What yes. are you ready for? Hmm, something very special. Hmm. Something that is regularly voted the world's best beer. Don't know what that could possibly be then. Mm, I don't know either. <laughs> no, today we have very special vertical tasting of the Splatron 12. Let's hope it's special because um, <laughs> they are. They could be in that sweet spot. They could be brilliant. They could be tasting great. They could have gone over. Could be drinking a lot of wet cardboard. Uh, the problem we regularly encounter with our stockpiling of beer <laughs> is that we end up uh, losing things at the bottom of the pile. So we knew we had a collection of Vespaletrin 12. We didn't know what years <laughs> we had. We didn't know how many. We didn't know how many. <laughs> I was delighted. I was like, brilliant. I, look, you know. <laughs> yeah, look at all of these, pulling them out, going, oh, we've got five of this year's and, you know. Blah, this, blah, blah. Would be, this would make a lovely weekend's treat. <laughs> yes. So something that we had planned for a while which is now coming to fruition is vertically tasting the first bottle we have the oldest bottle um against the con two next consecutive years so we have a bottle brewed in 2013 a bottle brewed in 2014 and a bottle brewed in 2015 very exciting i'm super excited about this one because i bought the first bottle you did um, indeed. But, yeah, I bought... You bought it from me. <laughs> I did buy it from you, from your bar. Um, but we've been hanging on to it and hanging on to it and going, no, it's not time yet, it's not time. And actually, we may have now we missed, might the, have missed the, the boat. Window. Yeah, I mean, we've got, we have got um, more recent bottles, but I think we felt we should really go ahead and try these, and it could be an interesting thing. At the end of the day, this is the joys and the pitfalls of, you know, ageing your beer in a cellar and you sometimes come out with a gem. It's the same with wine, it's the same with, you know, whiskey. You know, it doesn't always necessarily go along that it improves with age. And this style of beer, the, uh, the, the Trappist Belgian sort of quadruple, as most people call it, um, although I think I'd always ha hazard to say that it was, uh, you know, a quadruple is, is definitely a name that's been applied more recently. Because it was La Trap, I think, was the first uh, of the Trappist breweries to say this is called quadruple, which goes nicely with the ankle being the single, the uh, the double being the you know sort of the double and the triple, and then obviously quadruple. But otherwise, you'd call it a Belgian dark strong ale or a Belgian barley wine. So, um, but yeah, just for the sake of ease, we'll continue to call it quadruple. Excellent. So, Floss, can you just clarify for us what constitutes a quadruple or quad? Can try my damned hardest. Yes. Um, well, realistically, if we look at the the name of a Belgian barley wine as a better sort of example, and you think about your American style barley wines and your British barley wines being sort of like a, that deep sort of amber through to sort of chocolate, dark chocolate sort of coloured, um, and they're they're obviously stronger. It's almost like that sort of fortified, you know, it's like a, that fortification, that extra bit of strength, the alcohol. They tend to be beers that store quite well and are better actually after a little period of time rather than when they're bang fresh because they're often a little bit rougher with sort of spicy phenolic uh, aromas and flavours and the associated stronger alcohols that go with them that haven't quite mellowed out yet to produce those lovely sort of figgy pudding and sort of, you know, lovely delicious sort of dried fruit flavours that they, they get to later when they slightly oxidise. So, yeah. And obviously the Belgian element of that sort of barley wine, if you like, is that they don't tend to focus as much on the hop 
bitterness and the hop aroma that goes with your associated American and British barley wines that do have a greater hop presence in them. Um, so instead of that, they're relying upon the sort of phenolic, spicy, aromatic and flavour compounds instead to replace that. And obviously, as they mellow out with age, they turn into very interesting new compounds. So, yeah, dark, fruity, slightly vinous in their characteristics and boozy as hell. That's basically it. <laughs> Excellent. I think that is a, a lovely clarification. Um, so I think you also have a little bit of history for us and we thought we'd get that out of the way so then we can just focus Just get the history minds. out of the way. Yeah, get, get rid of it. Get history, put the history behind us and then we can focus on the tasting. Yeah, sure thing. So yeah, straight off the bat, 806 AD. Sounds bloody early, doesn't that it? It does sound early. Um, but very, very loosely, there was a monastic presence there or hermitage and there's been a nunnery on the, on and around the site basically since that that point in time. So this is the site of Vesflertren. Good, yep. Didn't even think to clarify this. We're talking about St Sixtus Abbey uh, right. in Vesflertren. Um, and yeah, the site there, round about there, there's been a hermitage, as I say, and, and monastic settlements and nunneries and, you know, you name it, it's been there. So... But this is not a point of continuity, so you can never say, oh, this is your date, you know, thanks very much. It's not like it has a, a plaque on the wall or no. like a stone that's carved no, exa- exactly. 800 just, AD. Just a, uh, a longevity of historical, monastic... Activity. And basically r- religious-related uh, um, occupation and activity on the site. So skipping massively forwards, 1839, brewing at the site took place for the first time in the continuity of West Fleetheran as St Sixtus Abbey. Okay. So again, things had happy, happened in that period of time, but at this point it's not an abbey. That took until 1871 when it was elevated to abbey status. I really have skipped out all the stuff, you know, who founded it and this, that and the other. I just want to keep this quite succinct. 1871, they started selling their beer outside of the abbey for the first time. Anything that was made previously to that was just for the just for the monks' consumption. World War One comes along and... Where West Vlietheren is uh, situated within Belgium was the 5% of land that still remained unoccupied Only by Germany. 5%? By the German army. So they're left out on this little sort of island of land that's almost surrounded by German occupation. Um, and so demand in that area was quite high for beer um, because they were not, you know, they were sort of trapped up on their little land spot with... With you know nothing much to do <laughs> except from fight off the, uh, the the forces of the German army, so um, the demand for beer went up quite drastically in that period of time, and actually went from producing I think something um, in the figures of five percent of what they um, of what the their financial gen- the finances that they generated in that period of time were from the from beer. Yeah. To sixty percent within a few years was just from from beer. So and this was during the world wars. Yeah. So yeah. that because they were not occupied, they actually were able to continue. Whereas we know that most of the uh, you know other monasteries and breweries lost their copper, was t- stolen away from them, was dismantled, buildings were taken forced on by down. the army, they were yeah. forced out. Um, so yeah, obviously that's what you know. Only five percent though that remained what we'd say is Belgian. Yeah. So ninety-five percent of uh, was so occupied just by Germany. Surrounded by the German yeah. army, but they were like, "We're just going to carry on brewing our beer." So that's it. Yeah. <laughs> so skipping forward a little bit more, beginning of World War Two is when the beer that we're about to drink was first in its sort of iteration was first brewed. 
Um, so pretty close to that. I think it was at that time considered 12, 12% beer, but it's not necessarily clear because Belgian degrees um, are different to alcohol by volume and Plato and all sorts of other different measuring systems. So it was probably equally, it could have just been the same as this. The number system, whilst I'm on that, is also related to uh, uh, Belgian degrees. So this is at Westie 12, obviously so Westie 12. 12 degrees Belgian. Yes, 12 degrees Belgian, exactly, which... And when, you know, obviously it's measuring the sugar rather than how strong it is. So it could have finished out really high and actually not being that strong a beer, but very, very sweet. But instead, obviously, it's the beer that's 10.2% as it is now. So in real terms, this beer is quite young in design. I think that it's easy to imagine because of this kind of um, romantic idea around monasteries and it being very yep. old and ancient and uh, reverent mm -hmm. um, that... These beers have been around for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. Well, this this is it. And actually, when we come to it, because we've got our uh, Trappist episode coming up soon, yeah. um, you'll see that really a lot of this is not. It's a sort of a false historical narrative, which doesn't mean that, you know, the history of brewing by the monasteries isn't, you know, incredibly old. Yeah. But a lot of these beers are not that old and you know when you start to think about the understanding of brewing science and technology that we sort of tackled in the portion and stout episode and then the lager episode it could have only really been recent that these refinements were possible anyway so post-world war ii they decided to halt commercial sales so they stopped selling um to to people outside so that was cafes and all sorts of other people that were distributing beer and selling it which is part of what's led to this hype culture behind the West Lutheran brand. Because um, it is notoriously tricky to get hold of. Yeah, and they're, they're not, you know, because they have no demand to make a large volume to make money. You know, the money is basically, it's all about the upkeep of the monastery, the daily lives of the monks, and then the rest goes into charitable, you know, foundations and, you know, and looking after, you know, various different people and, you know, who are in places of difficulty in their lives. So they do a lot of charitable work. So at that time, it's just the monks who are drinking the beer because it's just brewed just for them. Um, and so they sold off all of their cafes because at the time they owned a load of cafes as well. But they, except for the one they still maintain to this day, is in De Vred. I've probably said that in completely wrong. Um, <laughs> Maybe our Belgian listeners can let us know how you're supposed to pronounce that one. I hope they will. Uh, <laughs> so that the cafe in De Vred, which I'm saying wrong, yeah. undoubtedly, is opposite the sort of uh, the gates to the abbey. So the other side of the road. And so that's where people can still to this day go and drink uh, the the eight, the, the six, the eight, and the twelve um, straight out of the bottle um, in the in the cafe. And you can often buy the little six packs and the fresh cheese and lovely, oh, lots of good good food in there as well. So it's a great spot to go to. And there's a little uh, museum, like a little museum in there as well. They're maintained in De Vred, uh, but 1946 the beer was sold to individuals only at the gates so people could then suddenly get the beer again but it was only at the gates of the abbey itself and in 1976 they built a drive-in to facilitate demand and at that time they were offering five types of beer um so those were the two degrees belgian the four degrees belgian six eight and twelve and it's the six eight and twelve that survived from that period of time the other two two and four were discontinued so there was just, it was a table beer and a very very low sort of mid-strength beer and so the three remaining ones, the six, the eight, and the twelve, were all brown. So a bit like the Rochefort range until recently, all dark brown, mahogany sort of coloured beers. Um, that changed in 1999 when 
Café de Vred was refurbished, and it is the way it is now. And alongside it, the Six Degrees Belgium was replaced by uh, the Blonde. So the Blonde is the other one which you can get, which is a cracking, cracking beer. I absolutely love that. And it, I almost crave it more than I crave the 12 and, and the 8, but they're obviously sterling beers as well. I've missed out lots and lots of information. I have a whole lifetime's worth of uh, information to share with you all about the, these beers, but I'm just trying to do a potted history there. The thing I have massively skipped out in saying, though, is that at one point, the brewing, at the same time that they were still brewing for, for the monks' consumption within, within the abbey, they also licensed the brand St Sixtus um, to be brewed by what is now St Bernardus. So that was also, and there's a long history there that is interrelated with uh, the Mont de Chat, which is also a Trappist monastery uh, just over the border in France, yeah. um, who also have their beer now that is on the questionable end of the, the scale. It is brewed by Chimay for Mont de Chat, and sometimes people say it's Trappist, but because it's not actually brewed, it is brewed by other Trappists, yes. but it's not brewed at Mont de Chat. So, um, so there you go, and that's probably a slightly more poorly Flemish sort of pronunciation of a very <laughs> French word. So, you know, pick and choose and just tell me off as and when you want to. So that's basically a little bit about it. But the beer we'll be drinking now is a 10.2% beer. So uh, thank God we've got all day to drink that. Eh? Yes. <laughs> and we're going to have a big meal later to soak it all up again. Indeed we are. Right. Um, I think the time has come, and I'm incredibly excited um, I'm getting rather dry in the mouth. Are we going to pour them all out and just sippity sip? Yeah, so if you can hold the glasses, yes. So I will take one beer at a time. Absolutely. So, something we discovered uh, upon digging these out of the cupboard. There's a huge amount of sediment at the bottom of these bottles. It's yeah. like a carpet, a finger's depth carpet. Yeah. Well, no, uh, so that is part of the thing when you age beers like these. These they are unfiltered and they're unfined, so they're, they're going to they normally have a natural haze to them. These will have dropped pretty bright, but obviously all of that protein and all of those heavy compounds are packed right down towards the bottom of the mm-hmm. bottle. And, yeah, there's a nice big sh- shag pile rug of, a, <laughs> of yeast, <laughs> of yeast at, the at the bottom. Um, so we're going to have to pour these very, very carefully. Well, I will endeavour to do my best. Yeah. And hopefully not... I'm glad it's you and not me. ...not feed my knee too much. <laughs> Ooh, will this explode? No, not at all. And again, that's another thing that does tend to be the case. You, you the get neck. lower carbonation as time goes by. Right then, that delicate operation number one is done. Whew, mama. That smells good. It's really sherry-like. Already, you right. can just smell Let's it. Do the next one. Right. Ready? We're just gonna get them all poured Pour them all out. Roz is uh, very delicately taking the bottle caps off because he knows I like them. Uh, Lots of earrings <laughs> to be made. Here. Lots of earrings. I do. I like to make earrings with my favourite beer bottle caps, and um, I have a couple of uh, twelve West Bertrand twelve ones already, but. Uh, it was super special. You've got eights as well, haven't you? I think. I've got one eight, I think. Well, we'll get another one soon then. Yes. And I haven't fed my knee yet, which is good. <sighs> yes. Oh, mama. It's interesting that the the effervescence on the first one was a lot more. It was a lot li- more lively than the subsequent two. sound that's a very lovely sound 
is exciting because we've been talking about this for ages. I guess we'll start with the 2013 and take it from there. Lovely. Right. Here goes nothing. Chin chin up. Cheers. So interesting enough, you know, like you expect oxidation characteristics to sort of start to work their way in. This is where, again, the benefit of not being as hop-centric, these beers, the Belgian barley wines, the strong dark, um, you know, the strong Belgian dark beers, or quadruple beers, whatever you want to call them, um, is that you don't have those hop compounds in the same way to start to oxidise and add on top of everything else. So oxidised hop aromas can often be cheesier and you get sort of, you know, like the, the bitterness starts to evolve, devolve and you get this, you can often get actually a rise in bitterness, but it's, it's you'd more associate it with sort of like a tannic sort of feeling on the palate. Um, so the other things you tend to get is with your ox your oxidation, you tend to get this more sort of uh, licorice and vanilla and sherry, pheno sherry in particular, sort of notes in there and like your port. I was going to say port. A bit more sort of almost woody, earthy flavours and aromas come into that. You also then get like leather and tobacco, other things that people talk about. So we'll you know get into here and you can see straight away though that one of the negative elements of oxidation has ever so slightly crept in, which is transtunonal, which is um, which effectively makes the beer smell ever so slightly like wet cardboard or celery. Um, when I say celery, I mean not celery sticks. Num 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 num, delicious. Uh, I mean cellar, like like a cellar. Ah, I see. So it's just a little touch in there. And it's not it's not overwhelming. Actually, when we first opened it, I definitely had this. Uh, a bit more of like a vinegary smell as well yeah. um but that seems to have disappeared now and it's definitely just left that kind of rich port um or like madeira kind of aroma yeah madeira is great yeah um, very much so uh, raisin as well which you get from the fresh young ones as well um darling the young ones <laughs> we're the young ones so it's i mean it's re retained it's lovely sort of soft raisined bread sort of quality and I think that is up front it's beautiful but because West Vleteren are slightly more hop centric than say Rochefort with their they slightly they add spices to their to their 10 um, and a lot of the other guys are just you know straight up as they are West Vleteren I think actually has the highest IBU of the quadruples made by the Trappist uh, monks at the moment um, but so there is actually still, to my mind, there's an ever so slight sort of residual uh, menthol sort of character in the in the aroma, maybe even sort of wood bark menthol sort of aroma. But again, that's coupled with a little bit of that licorice and tobacco and leather sort of, um, sort of smooth sweetness as well. What do you think of that then? You've tried it, I haven't yet. Yeah, I'll. Um, I'd say touch of marmite. Um, but it's not... Oh, yeah. It's sort of quite late on in the palate, isn't it? it? You're is sort of going, oh, that's delicious. A little, just a little, little something. But I don't really mind that. No. If you get more than that level, I think it does start to sort of dominate, and mm. that really lessens the enjoyment of the beer. But it almost actually helps to cut through what is still quite a sort of sweet, boozy... It's very hot, very warm, this beer. It's, yeah, it's warm, but it's also the alcohols have mellowed out. They don't feel rough and coarse, no. which I, you know, maybe it's that doesn't like make sense to people. It's not like whiskey or something. No. It's, it's very much, like, again, on the brandy port side where it, it, it warms and coats Yeah, your absolutely. 
I mean, it's fascinating because it's got like a little bit of um, sort of sort of banana chocolate cake. But one thing that really stands out to me is this almost sort of sarsaparilla, Coca Cola sort of aroma in there. There's yeah. Like a root beer, sort yeah, of. Yeah, like root yeah. beer, exactly. It's sort of like a cross between all of those, a isn't it? A dandelion and burdock is what mm. I should have said, because I can't say I've ever had proper root beer. Oh, you have. I, I bought you a can once. We shared it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I forgot about that. Um, they're so very that, similar, anyway. That, but that, I'm still thinking that cardboardy, slightly less than a, appealing aroma is very, very small in this, and I don't mind it. And considering we're talking about a beer that we're already saying is, how we said it's seven years old, didn't we? Well, uh, approaching eight years. It's about eight years old. Isn't yeah. It? Um, so now, for my mind, I'm just going to say this before we move on to the next ones. The a lot of these beers will age very well over a prolonged period of time. Some quadruple styles, if you want to call them that, have been known to age really well up to thirty years, which obviously seems an excessively long period of time. But obviously, if you've got the right atmosphere and you keep it in a, a you know a, a constant sort of space of temperature darkness uh, humidity and you don't move it a lot of beers can can be really really good after that prolonged period of time that are darker and boozier and you know you know stronger in alcohol anyway um but i mean i'd still in my mind i still think the optimum for this beer based on the slightly more muted palette on this there's lots going on still but i feel like it's just lost probably some of that figgy pudding sort of port glazed raisin sort of flavors that you get uh, rich and um, kind of rounded flavours that, that hit every part of your palate. It's missing, it's, it's kind of... Mm. Uh, like flavours have dropped out. Yeah, and so you sort of get this, a little blank bit, and then the sort of back end of the yeah. palate where we were saying there is that little bit of Marmite in there as well. So I would say that really the optimum in, in this is four to six years. Yeah. Um, so probably, you know, we're saying that averages out f- at five. And I think really at four or five, it's going to be really, really nice. And then I think just after that, it probably starts to take a bit of a, a dip in form. Um, but I'm still really impressed, actually, because we haven't been able to consistently keep that in one place. No, it hasn't actually been as cold as we might like in mm-hmm. our cellar space, which, you know, we, people know about. Um, so I'm actually really impressed with that. And I still really like it. And I'm looking forward to drinking the rest of that in the bath later. Oh, <laughs> I'll be drinking the rest while I cook the roast dinner. Uh, let's move on to 2014. Ooh. So um, you touched on it there briefly, this kind of uh, window of uh, optimum ageing. And uh, what the brewery itself seems to have deemed the optimum age was five years. Yeah. But the bottle... The bottle cap on these says, uh, uh, well, I believe is three years. Three years. I think West Vlitheren say for their, their eight and their 12, it's three years. Um, I can't remember what it is for the for the blonde, but blonde is, drank, is to be drunk fresh. It's not to be kept. Rochford, on the other hand, I believe say five years. Um, but I think the understanding is with a lot of these beers that around about that three to six year mark is is, is pretty good. And immediately, there's a huge difference between this one and the previous there, one. There's a distinct difference. It's um, the, I'd say, the sweet molasses aroma yeah. is really prominent in this one, in, yeah. the, in the fresher one, the 2014. Um, we're yeah, not we're calling that the fresher one. The fresher <laughs> one. <laughs> Lovely uh, fresh. The, the younger out of these two. It seems to have like a, a top end sort of. Uh, pepperiness or something it's retained its spice i mean i immediately you know that sort of little menthol note that i was picking up there that sort of woody menthol sort of um Mm. herbal aroma in there 
in the 13 is so much more prominent in the 14 and that sort of sarsaparilla thing is a lot stronger i think yeah um it really really kicks out but it also it smells overall slightly sweeter but it smells like balanced sweeter it doesn't smell like it's really that true sort of oxidative um uh, degradation taking place that you know where it started to get more sweet savory um towards the cardboard end it's keep keeping that it's more caramel and toffee so as you say you know you said molasses i think that's a great you know as a that's exactly what it sort of comes across as that's lovely though and it's again it's still it has a, a fresh vibrancy which is really surprising from a beer that is obviously this dark and boozy and people associate it with being viscous and actually it's this quite crisp. Really, it's dry. Yeah, this is really dry and crisp. Um, and when I say crisp, I mean people will be going, "What's crisp?" You know, it's ten point two percent. It's a crispy boy. It's a crispy boy. Yeah. <laughs> In a, a habit, not a habit. A cloak. <laughs> not a cloak. What do they call them? Cassock. No. Uh, cowl habit. Cowl. Yes, yeah. I think cassock's probably fine cassock. as well. Yeah. I'll go with cassock. A crisp boy in a That's cassock. That's a classic cassock. <laughs> I um I know that the. Oh yeah. The pour from the first one definitely got a bit more yeast in it. Um, I'm not sure whether that may have coloured some of the uh, flavouring. Probably highlights that little bit of marmite sort of um, sharpness in there because you probably have got some yeast in your mouth as you've been in drinking the, it. In the suspension as well. In, and I wonder, because when the yeast dies, can it not end up back in suspension in the when, it's, when the beer's turned? Well, I think to a degree, obviously, a lot of yeast will naturally pack down and it will flocculate towards the bottom of the glass. But obviously, yeah. as yeast does die, it sort of loses its um, vitality. Well, of course, it loses vitality. Yeah. It's dead. Um, <laughs> it's but I think it's less less likely to adhere. Bar the only thing changing that is the pressure. But obviously, as CO two is slowly escaping the cap, that pressure is not really there in the same way. So, I think you also do get you're more likely to get floaters. But, I mean, a lot of Belgian beers, it's quite famous, in my mind anyway, that people are like, oh, you know, this, 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 and this. And a lot of the time you pour a Belgian beer and it just, like, it looks like a snow globe. Because yeah. a lot of the yeast does not pack down very nicely at the bottom of the glass. But, as we said before, you know, a lot of these beers, however, you know, classic, they're considered by the world at large. Um, one of the things that often is the case is that, you know, you end up with floaters and you just accept it. That's lovely. So again, it's much much the same in some of those flavor flavors that we've talked about, but I just think they're less muted. There's there's a bit more balance in that. The, the alcohol is is still probably about on a par with its warmth, but the sweetness seems a lot more rounded out of that and some of the aldehydes. You know, some of the some of the other elements that have been um, that have come out from the phenols and esters as it's aged, as it's micro oxidized. So you're getting a really nice balanced beer there. And I think this is the 2014. So what we're saying there is that this is a sort of six to seven year old beer. The one thing that's surprising me actually is the um, carbonation. Yeah, the carbonation is still very good in that, isn't it? Uh, well, I was actually thinking that the, well, maybe it's just because of the lacing on the, the 2013. But actually, it's it's not really got any no. kind of head retention, has it? It hasn't, no. Um, which is Which is often telltale sign obviously alcohols can 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 um, be preventative of head retention but as i've often thought people are comparing all these different ages and there is obviously a fairly large chance that there has been an ever so slight fluctuation in process or you know whatever in this period mm. of time 
you know, for a start, we even said that was a different crown cap on there. We don't know if it was even slightly different company they sourced it from, and we don't know how those things, you know, all those potential small little factors operate. Um, but yeah, so what you've ended up with is a beer that this one is a bit mirror pond. It's a bit flat, and that those two, um, you know, they these two have seemed to have a little sort of tan curl towards the sides of the glasses yeah. with a little a little bit of a speckled pattern on top of the. The, you know, like sort of the surface of the moon on top of the um, on, on top of the 2013. Yeah. But onto the 2015, which it again looks looks flat as a as a witch's tit, as they say. <laughs> um, yeah, and but again, like you agitate it a little bit, and the effervescence is there. The carbonation comes right out. Yeah, absolutely, it does. One thing we haven't mentioned at all when we talk about these beers is the colours. Um, and really, they're very, very consistent, the colours throughout. And it's nowhere near as dark as people always think they are. But a lot of these um, these beers will actually, over a period of time, can often actually brighten up a little bit. So they can start out darker and they get ever so slightly lighter over a period of time. So what happens there? You don't absolutely, have the science. Absolutely <laughs> no idea on that one, I'm afraid. Oh, it's one of my science man. It's one of my four massive uh, pitfalls in uh, in my brewing knowledge. Well, I'd love to know. So if any of our listeners has that information about why colour changes, why it gets lighter as the beer gets older, I would love to know. So shoot us an email or a, a tweet or a Instagram message. Tweet or twat at us and we'll, we'll respond in kind. <laughs> right, so 2015. I feel like the aroma's less distinct, or that it could be the shape of the glass. Uh, it could be the one, shape of the glass. Uh, it's a slight flare on it, so it probably is channelling a bit more... Um, I feel they're very similar, myself. In an ideal world, we'd have had identical glasses, but we don't have that luxury. What we have is too many glasses, but not enough of the uh, same type. I mean, it, it does ever so slightly smell muted, but I would probably attribute that to the to the glassware rather than anything else. Yeah. It is the widest aperture as well in the glass um, mm. out of all of them. And I don't think it's probably the most ideal for, for this, but... If you give it a little swirl, I think it really matches up very similarly to the 2014. I get a little less of that molasses, molasses sweetness uh, in the aroma. Ooh. It's, it's um, I'd say, a bit more bitter. Yeah, bitterness is definitely higher. I'd also maybe still argue that what we experienced in the 2013 is maybe a bit more present in here, that there is maybe a, ever so slightly more of that autolyzed sort of Marmite flavour. Because mm. it's almost like a coarseness like when you've had salt water on your tongue just sort of sticks there i know what you mean yeah mm, and that could also be a contribution from sort of higher alcohols fusel alcohols in particular that will give you that ever so slightly rougher sort of um like somebody sandpapering your tongue or whatever <laughs> and you just get that little uh coating on your tongue uh it also does appear to be in comparison to the others and i wonder if this is also the case that it has a slight, what looks like a slight, uh, like oil slick on top of the on top of the beer, and I wonder if that might be something to do with fusel alcohols or tannins as well. I see. So another reason why you might end up with um, that sort of coarseness on the palate. But again, this all sounds like I'm saying negatives. This beer tastes delicious. Still, it yes. tastes incredible. Can't I'm almost exactly we're, because we're looking for the the sort of. The aged characteristics, you have to look at the positives as well as the negatives, and I'm highlighting those first and foremost. Yeah. I mean, I definitely know which my favourite is. Yes. And I'll get on to that in a bit. This is a little bit more 
sort of sweet bread marzipan, but I feel that the sort of booziness and that ever so slightly marmitey bitterness on top of it is a very, very small note in there, but I think we're both picking it out, aren't we? Yeah. Um, means that it's less balanced for me, and the 2014 is the most balanced. The 2013 has got lots of interesting aroma, but with a bit more of a muted palette. This has got, perceptively, less aroma, or probably equal to the 2014, slightly different, but has more going on in the in the palette that I... First of all, I think it's got the most going on in the palette, but maybe it's the least balanced. I think it, it sort of yeah. is my... my my, it's not my preference as far as the actual flavour is. I, I would agree that balance, that lack of balance, and um, that there is something muted in the middle, and I think it just it's missing that sweet, like uh, like the stone fruit and the soft fruit, like mm-hmm. for the yeah, it's not uh, got the raisins, plums and prunes and raisins and figs, you know, which exactly. you which you want, which is what rounds the beer off and allows to kind of balance off that heady alcohol with um the the bitter and peppery um absolutely and you said it perfectly that is it's the scales being balanced out perfectly it's the seesaw effect and when you have that that's when you even with lots of strong components when it balances out like that is when it's obviously to most people's minds the most enjoyable um so first of all Mm All three of them cracking beers still. I'm very surprised. 2013 is obviously now at the point where you're going, I'm pleased we've cracked it open because yeah, it's. they're all technically probably on the downhill from now. Mm-hmm. I think we've hit the 2014 at a really good spot. I think actually the 2015 might get marginally better. Yeah. 2014 for me is at a, a beautiful spot. 2013, I'm just absolutely delighted that it's as good as that, um, which, you know, we say there's only a year in it, but that sort of year can be crucial. And also, that is the beer that we've had the longest. We've had a single of it where we've had multiples of a lot of the others. And it's probably been kicked around the most, chucked in someone's bag, dragged out of a pub that's steaming hot, and, you know, this, that, and the other. So we know that it could have been uh, the least loved and therefore the least lovable now. Yeah. What's your favourite? Which one hits the sweet spot for you? I think, honestly, it's, it's no competition. It's the 2014. There you go. I think that's exactly the same thing for me. Which is strange, because that is um, six, almost seven years of ageing now. Yeah. Um, so it's double, it's sort of double that the age that they put on, you know, it's their best before date. Obviously, best before is a guidance, and as we know, some of these beers can be great for a lot longer. Which comes in as your second, though? I'd say the 2013. 2013? In spite of the oxidation... And this is going to be boring as hell, because it looks like we're just going to agree. Yeah. 2013, for me, comes in second as well, even though there's that slightly less crisp sort of oxidation characteristic coming in that I say is the negative end of oxidation compared to the positives that we look for in in aged or cellar-aged beers like this. Um, But the 2015 just, to me, has not got the finesse and balance that the 14 has or the sort of roundedness and almost, you know, tipping over towards the, the mundane and the the marmite that the 2013 is starting to, to, to go towards. At the moment, it's still leather leather and tobacco pouch, you know, like a nice mm. leather tobacco pouch. Oh, no, that smells beautiful. Um, so it, its aroma is a bit more uh, interesting. And overall, I think it's sort of, you know, it, it's kept its form really well. Its carbonation, its body is still very nice. It's streamlined a little bit, but it's still very, very enjoyable. 2014, just absolutely splendid. Yeah, I, that is that's 
what I always think of when I describe Resplendent 12 to people. That is the beer that has been rated as number one on Rate Beer time and again. That's what the best beer in the world tastes like. Yeah, and having said that, is it the best beer in the world? Obviously this, I imagine, a million and one podcast review sites, you know, blog spots, uh, Reddit accounts, this, that and the other, Twitter, you know, all the rest of them. You're just reading off all of the social medias that you know, aren't you? Yeah, and that's my list done, I'm afraid. <laughs> I think I did really well, actually. You did I included well. Reddit, you know, that's, yeah, that's miraculous. Yeah, I'm surprised I didn't realise you knew about Reddit. No, I only just found out about it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's fresh in my mind, and I still almost forgot. But I think those topics have been challenged and been probably talked to death over that period of time, you know. YouTube, YouTubers, vloggers, all the rest of it, they've often raised this subject or comparing different quadruples, um, doing the St. Bernardus and uh, West Vlietren to say, oh, we, you know, is it the same beer? It's not the same beer, and I'll say that now. It's definitely not the same beer. For a start, completely different yeast. Yes. I will just say this now, St. Bernardus potentially still has the original St. Sixtus strain. I think it does have the same strain, but it would have changed a lot since the time that it was used. That time that it was last used was quite a long time ago. St. Sixtus, being West Vlietren, uh, choose to use West Mala yeast, so they get somebody to run up to West Mala the same day to get fresh yeast still to pitch. I believe that to be the case still anyway. Yeah. So when people are going on about doing a Westy clone and they need to get the special yeast, well, it's just West Mala yeast. And Achel, who, you know, we've, we've just done a little blog about them, who uh, sadly will no longer have their trapper status, but they also use West Mala yeast and so do West Mala. So... You've got three breweries using the same yeast with very, very different effects. You know, there's a lot more hop character in West Lutheran's beers, and there's, um, you know, there's a lot more sort of boozy notes. West West Mala, you know, have got a lot more sort of banana and clove in theirs, and Archel somewhere in between. And that's all about the temperature and the oxygen rate that you go with, and all those little micro details that separate breweries. And that's why, however much you try to replicate or clone something, it's never going to be the same. Which is why it's best not to try and clone. Just doff your hat to some of them. So, best beer in the world. Let's just talk very briefly about the hype machine. Yes. So, what year was it that uh, Rate Beer awarded this beer the status of best beer in the world? I think it was 2005 that it was voted the best beer in the world by RateBeer.com. So, a popular... Ratings. It was untapped of its day. It was up until what, like eight or nine years ago. I mean, it's still it's still ardently used by people. The the other one that there is is Beer Advocate, which has typically remained a bit more um, sort of an American review site. Whilst Rate Beer is still an American site, but I think has become a bit more of an international usage. On a lot more, yeah. So. Just to add to that sort of hype machine that went with the West Lutheran, as we say, the difficulty to get hold of, the small batches made, the changes in process in which you could get it, the fact that, as that we've highlighted in the blog spot, that they're the only one that, again, still really are considered as being monastically involved in the daily day, day-to-day processes. Um, so at least one monk is doing one of those jobs, but paired off with a layperson. So that is, you know, somebody that is not part of the monastic community, whilst the rest of them, these tasks are undertaken by lay people. So along with all of those things, you know, the, the drive through, the beer phone in with a number and you had to have the right number and call at the right time and you'd be in a queue and, you know, you've got the first, first come, first serve. 
You'd only have two cases. People then doing all sorts of interesting dodges. I think you were telling me one, which I think is a good time oh, to tell it now. Yeah, because I was trying to research beer crimes because I wanted to um, do an episode on beer crimes. Unfortunately, I'm finding it very hard to find enough uh, <laughs> fodder for that episode, so I might have to <laughs> abandon it. But this popped up, and it was a story that someone told about a man they met at a bottle share in New York, and he was bragging about his beer cellar and he was talking about how he had um, a couple of hundred bottles mm-hmm. of uh, Restfletch from 12 and the guy um, who wrote this story down he, he was like well how did you manage that because it's notoriously difficult they only sell one case per or I think for a while it was two cases but I think it's dropped down to one now yeah um, and he said that he had a, basically a phone chain set up so that he had multiple phone numbers phoning the Abbey at the same time. When one was picked up, he would register um, a car license plate because for, they, they do it by license plate to make sure that people aren't picking up too many cases. Yeah. He had a friend in Belgium or had befriended a taxi driver in Belgium who had a fleet of taxis. So he would register, with each phone number he used, would register a different license plate from each of the taxis from this fleet. Um, The owner of the taxi company would drive up to the Abbey in each of the cars, pick up the allotted bottles, Mm. put them in the trunk, drive off. And he would do that over and over and over again. And he, so the taxi driver was then storing them for this guy in his own shed. Mm. And um, then after like six months or, uh, you know, a a couple of years, would fill um, a shipping container and send it all over to him. Which is crazy. I mean, you know, you'd have thought he'd just do um, just do like a a lot at a time and, you know, like send a load out. But yeah, (laughs) no. And and it just it it irritates me. And I'm sure that if the Abbey knew, I'm not sure if the Abbey ever caught on to what this guy was doing. Well, I think to I a degree they, they must did. have done because it's why they changed very recently to just online orders so that you can't set up this chain of phone numbers and license plates and what have you because they've had such a serious problem. So I'll go into more about that now. So the increasing demand, even from the mid 20th century, um, led to huge like traffic jams in what is a fundamentally is an agricultural area. There's nothing really there. You know, you're, you've got Westfleter on one side and Ostfleter on the other side where uh, Destroyser Brewers are. And basically, all around it is, is hop fields going down towards Poporinga and then nothing else. It's all farming, agricultural land. Historically, it would have been dairy herds and, you know, and cheese, you know, cheese production, this, that and the other. So there's not really a great deal there. And so all of these roads were getting snagged up with people parking there. And, you know, I've heard stories about fist fights breaking out that were caught on camera in with people who were queuing for the beer. Um, and so th- these problems that were starting to develop were causing a headache for not only the monastery, which is not part of its remit to, first of all, stop people, you know, going mad about it. You know, it, they're just doing it because it's it's part of the Trappist way of life. Yeah. And they certainly don't want to be uh, refereeing like punch, you know, like boxing matches. Oh, um, but the police were obviously then having a huge problem because they were having to monitor and try and keep the tra- you know traffic free zones and you know like so it was just an absolute nightmare. So obviously they'd done the drive through. They ended up with you know um, having to increase the amount of parking space they'd got and this that and the other. So they really had to do a hell of a lot just to stop people from being <laughs> ludicrous about it all. 
So when Rape Beer gave them this 2005, you know, voted best beer in the world sort of accolade, it was just a huge um, albatross around their neck. It was, you know, it was, it was basically <laughs> screwing them over. Yeah. And I think they actually called the Rape Beer like head office and said, "You've basically done us a disservice here. You know, this is causing us even more problems." So the demand had already been so high, and now it was even higher because yes, yeah, the best beer in the world according to one site. Obviously, that means everything to everybody. Yeah. So, yeah. And there was a politician in Belgium at the same time, a very popular Bel- uh, politician at the time, who claimed to drink a bottle of uh, West and 12 every night before he went to bed. Um, you know, that's, that's his nightcap, as you do. And, that's, that's you know, definitely. so it further stretched sales and demand through the roof just in, in Belgium alone. But obviously the, the demand and the craze for it across the world was astronomical. Even last year, 2020... They were still, I think they're still rated third in the world as, you know, the greatest brewery. And, you know, it's, it's madness, in my opinion. It's a brilliant beer. Mm. Is it the best beer? How can anyone quantify what the best beer exactly, is? Exactly. Is it, it the most so... hyped beer? Is it the most sought after? Is it the FOMO culture king? Yeah, probably it is. I mean, there's probably beers now that have snuck in there a little bit. And, you know, people queue around the block for beers in, you know, some of these juicy New England places and... Um, I mean, beers like Mills and... Um, yeah, of course, you know, yeah. Here in the UK, yeah. Um, but yeah, so 2006, they introduced a new sales system and they basically whittled it down further since then and they've, they've slowly tightened it to stop, you know, fraudulence. There was a company in uh, the Netherlands that bought loads and loads of cases and were flogging them in a supermarket, sold sold it to a supermarket and the supermarket mm-hmm. was still selling them for the same price that everyone else is, which is 15 to £25 pounds a bottle. Well, this is the other thing, isn't it? It's like the Abbey itself... I mean, how much are they selling a bottle for? Well, it's not very expensive. I think it's a couple of euros. It's it's. I think it's about five euros a bottle yeah. for the West Lutheran Twelve. Which is now. what, like four pound fifty? Yeah, something. I might be wrong about that. So again, corrections would be great. Obviously, I'm just I'm just hazarding a, a very reminiscent guess from <laughs> previous occasions. But but then by marking up the price, it's like you know, the the purpose of this beer is to benefit the uh, the monastery and the local community yeah. or like charitable causes. And these, it these... feels like a bit of a shitty yeah. thing to do. To oh no! Mark up the and, price it, and it is. It is. I, we I understand. Paid, I paid fifteen quid for that first. You paid fifteen pounds for that first one. I know you did. And I've paid what five pounds for the rest of those. Yeah, because episodes. you've actually you went to Belgium and got them and yeah. brought them back. Yeah, exactly. Again, that's just buying. You know, even if you buy the, that's the six pack. I think it's cheaper if you buy a whole case. People, you know, just forget that it's that it is a cloistered monastic life that they lead, and that their primary concern is is to pray mm. and that their work is part of their prayer and dedication to God. So they don't really care about being considered this, that and the other. They make a beer because it allows them to do the good things that they're supposed to be doing in the world and their dedication to God. But anyway, finally they changed to a, an online service now. Mm. Um, that's not like click and collect or anything like that, <laughs> which we've all got used to in these these are COVID times. But um, they've managed to nail down their sort of like the customer satisfaction has got better the traceability has got better so now they can trace a batch to where it goes to so if if something pops up they can find out where it's where it's ended up nice. so they've they've managed to get these things with you know various different serial numbers etc etc so they really have managed to help themselves by moving slightly into the 21st century um but yeah so brilliant beer best beer in the world it is not brilliant beer Definitely. I mean, I, I still think it's fantastic. My preferred, if I'm honest, my mm-hmm. preferred is probably still Rochford. Yeah. I still have a very soft spot and for Rochford 10. I would 
I mean, moving away from the Trappist, I think I prefer um, St. Bernardus 12. Ooh. I know. And I, we have done a side-by-side -side before. Yeah. And I think they they are starkly different, I think, because a, a, a lot of the time, and the first time I ever had St. Bernardus 12, it was sold to me as, this is as close as you'll get to West Yeah, Veterans which I, is hilarious, isn't it? But actually, once you've got them side-by-side, -side, they're not that similar. But it the... I, I just enjoy the overall experience of the St. Bernardus more and well, it's the more, availability of yeah. it. Yeah, and it's got more of those sort of nice sort of banoffee pie and bubble gum and, you know, it's notes that... It's a bit sweeter. That, it, bit and it probably... Yes, I think it, I think it probably is a bit sweeter. Um, and it could even just be down to sort of that... The, the base malt that they've built it on and how well they oxidise over time and how well they age and whether it's got candy sugars and stuff in the candy syrups or whatever instead. So these are all various different you know elements that will contribute to why one might prefer one and another person might prefer another one. But yeah, I mean, I think they're all delicious and it's a cracking style of beer as well. So um, yeah, and I think as far as if you wanted to read further about these things, I will give you a list now. So I could give you a list as long as my arms and my legs. And if you know my height, that's that's pretty considerable. <laughs> um, but I will just keep it to a very succinct 25 books. <laughs> well, that's fairly believable for you. Our <laughs> yeah. book collection is at least one book. I mean, it is, it, I think it is still six books, that I'm going to say. Um, one of them is Brew Like a Monk by Stan Hieronymus. Again, it's a, now, particularly with Arkell's demise to a degree, it's sort of slightly out of date, but... It's a great book. It's a great read. It's obviously a really great oversight of how to brew these styles of beers and actually understanding, you know, what it is to brew them, not as a clone. Another great example of a book that we've mentioned before, particularly for what we've done here, trying these verticals, is Vintage Beer by Patrick Dawson. Yep. It's a fantastic book. Really gives you some great pointers on how to look after your beer. And if you want to try something like we've done today, that's a great book to read. Um, Probably couldn't do this this um, this sort of thing without knowing your beers in the first place. So, cameras, good beer guides, Belgium by Joe Stang and Tim Webb. Stangel, I've said his name wrong, but I always think of the German Kolsch glass. Um, so I will say that wrong. A great book that we acquired halfway through the year last year um, was Belgian Trappist and Abbey beers by Jeff van der Steen, one of my favourite brewers and writers. That is a tome. <laughs> that, I mean, you know, if I throw that off the Eiffel Tower, it goes all the way through to Australia. It goes through <laughs> the core of the earth and comes out the other side. That's but a, a fantastic book with so much information. Yeah, because it, it's just, it is Belgian focused, but it also does all of the Abbey breweries and then the non-accredited Abbey style breweries. So people like St. Bernardus that are not related even. Uh, Trappist Beer Travels. Really nice book, very well presented, lots uh, of lovely one of my pictures. Um, and that is like uh, one part travel guide, one part sort of beer history, um, and one part something else that I can't even think. Um, but that's a really good book as well by Caroline Wallace, Sarah Wood, and Jessica Deal. And that's also a blog as well. Yeah. That that group of women have a blog. I yeah. believe it is called Trappist Beer Travels as well. Yeah, three wonderful women and their you know their writing style and approach and their photography is fantastic and their you know their research is 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 is, is yeah, again next to none. They're very very accurate, which is great to see. And finally, I couldn't do any of the couldn't couldn't get away with not mentioning Michael Jackson's Great Beers of Belgium, which um, again is a sort of a bit of a doorstop, but it's a mini doorstop. Mm. Um, 
and um, yeah, it's a fantastic book. Legend yeah, in the beer and increasingly world. hard to get hold of an up-to-date copy of this. Um, I often see it go online for somewhere between a hundred and eighty to a hundred and thirty pounds. Um, and that's you know it's a lot of money, but really, if you're going to invest in something, then invest in Michael Jackson. Absolutely. If you like whiskey and you like aging whiskies, invest in Michael Jackson. <laughs> but yeah, so that's just a little list of some of those books that um, that we always have kicking around the house. <laughs> kicking around. <laughs> but they're um, they're great books to delve into. I have noticed within the past couple of weeks, um, there's not really space for me on the sofa anymore because that's nearly your... always. Beer books or uh, chessboard, chess <laughs> and then you've got the cricket on, and everything's piled up around you like you've built a fort. And it's, it's a fort. Two, it's a two-person sofa. It's a fort of fascination and stimulation, <laughs> and I don't mean like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I end up being relegated to sitting at the dining table, just like looking dining at, table, dining table, looking over at you forlornly while I try and concentrate on writing. Uh, <laughs> yes. No, I'm sorry. I'll make more space for the um, for for you and the books next time, and I'll sit on the floor. Yeah. The books take the precedent. Books take oh. precedent. <laughs> Only one of us can sit on the sofa because there has to be space for books. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, um, cheers for you know listening today. Cheers, Maz. Cheers. Thank Delicious. You. I think you might have already noticed I've offed my 2015. Yep. Uh, uh, ditto. 2015's gone. I really, really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it on on more on the sort of actually going at it a bit. But that's when you're not thinking about it as much. Obviously, as with us analysing and scrutinising and deliberating over them, the 2014 comes out massively on top. Yeah. But yeah, once you're not really thinking about it, the 2015 is still great. Absolutely. And as I say, the 2013. I'm just really surprised by the level of quality there. Um, not because I underestimate the brewery, but just because of that period of time that we've kept them in not, not the most ideal situations. So... I think I'm most surprised by the variation yeah. amongst them. I, I was a bit worried when we started this that we were going to end up tasting three beers that tasted identical. Yeah, and we've only, <laughs> me- we've only mentioned the, 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 the year. Yeah. Some of them could have been the very sort of golden rays of the, the year. They could have been the earliest days of yeah. the year. And the one, you know, one of them could have been in the back end. So they could be the best part of four years between them or you know, going further on than that. So... Yeah, really, really, really interesting thing to do. And obviously delicious to drink a few tasty, tasty Trappist mm-hmm. beers from West Felitheran. Um yeah. So yeah, when all this is all this madness is sort of culminated and wrapped up and everyone said, oh, th- thanks very much for stopping in and trying to kill us all. That's about the virus, by the way, not something else, not mm-hmm. about us boring you. But um, we'll be getting we'll be getting out there for a little uh, a little drive and a jaunt. That's and a priority. I think it's top of our list. Even if we're not getting cases of beer, we'll pop in, try... You haven't tried the blonde. I'd love you to try the blonde. Oh, I'd love to try the blonde. So, coming up next time, we have... We say finally now, because uh, we are actually wrapping this up. (laughs) Uh, We have a full special dedicated to the Trappist beers and Trappist breweries. Um, So we should have a good amount of history about the Belgian ones, Mm -hmm. um, a little bit more about the accreditation. Yeah. and and also the Trappist breweries around the world. Yes, I know we will have to, like we did with lager, it's a massive topic, it's a huge thing once you get into it. So we will have to slice through a lot of things, people will have favourites that will not get mentioned, and we will, you know, we will just do our best to give a broad overview, but still be able to delve a little bit into the history, and realistically what we're looking at is Trappists and Trappist production. So... 
abbeys will be mentioned, but they're not the focus. Um, the abbeys that produce them will be the focus and the beers themselves. So that's all to come soon. It was going to be a one-parter. It might end up being a two-parter. <laughs> we never know. There's six beers to get through. I mean, we do like to chat, so... Uh... We do like to waffle, which they love in Belgium. Oh. So thanks for tuning in. This has been Time at the Bar. Get, get out! out! Thank you for listening to Time at the Bar. If you have any beer recommendations, uh, suggestions for episodes, or you just fancy getting in touch, then please email us at tatbpod at gmail.com. If you use social media, then please follow us on Twitter at Time at the Bar Pod or Instagram at Time at the Bar Pod. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>